Great. Thanks, Peter and Ben. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're uh, visiting for the first time, like Ellen said, I want to just especially welcome you uh, to one of our church services. Uh, we are in a series, kind of a shortened uh, early summer uh, church uh, or sermon series right now called uh, Open Mic, which is kind of a catch-all uh, phrase for just um, uh, a sermon series that us pastors and preacher types can uh, preach what we want. And so uh, it's kind of a random miscellaneous uh, few weeks here through early July. But uh, some of you know this is going to kind of come with a big questions flare. Uh, and that, by that I mean we asked uh, some of you, or all of you actually, through, the, through our All Church email, if you saw that, uh, to supply us some questions to potentially preach through. Uh, and several, several of you did, and we thank you for that. And so, uh, again, some of these sermons uh, in these next few weeks will be answering some of those questions that we've been uh, given as uh, as. as um, pastors, including today's, uh, which will be a sermon on the topic of giving, and maybe more specifically than that, giving to a local church. And the question I've been asked multiple times before these past 16 years, uh, not just recently, but uh, throughout the years, um, is some form of this question. Do you guys believe in uh, tithing at Hiawatha Church? Everyone's favorite question, right? Um, but which is another, another way of asking, though, some other questions that you may or may not have had before, but I know, I know maybe a lot of you have is, um, do you guys believe that Christians are under an obligation to give 10% of their earnings to their local church directly? Um, And the question comes from the Old Testament law of tithing, which does reference a 10% number, but Christians have historically disagreed on uh, the question of whether or not that's something that transfers over to the New Testament on principle. Um, And so another angle on this question might just be, uh, a bit more objectively, like what does the Bible say about all this when it comes to tithing, 10% numbers, local church giving, uh, obligation or not, like the, those, kinds of, those kinds of questions. And so if you've ever had a question like that, um, that's what we're going to do. If you've never have and don't care, sorry, that's what we're going to do. Uh, it was the next few minutes. But, um, so just to lay out our, our cards on the table to the question of whether or not we believe in or practice a tithe at Hiawatha, The short answer is no, we don't. Uh, The longer answer as to why will take a little more time, but for starters, we don't practice it because the New Testament never mentions it once post-cross. By that I mean it never talks about tithing or 10% obligation in an ethical or normalized manner. Uh, In fact, the one time it does draw from Old Testament imagery to talk about the importance of paying pastors It doesn't use tithing laws as the source behind that teaching, uh, which is interesting. It uses other kinds of imagery that relates less directly to money. I'm not going to delve into that too much today, but that's from 1 Timothy 5, if you're interested in looking into that, where Paul talks to Timothy, the the first pastor in the city of Ephesus, in his first letter to him, and uh, talks about that uh, that whole thing. All right, but backing up a little bit, I want to talk just for a few minutes on what exactly is tithing biblically, because um, that might be a new term. Uh, to you as well, uh, but, but the uh, idea or the term, the word, comes from when God commanded Israel to set aside a tenth of the produce of the land and give it to the Levites. The Levites were the priestly tribe since they had no inheritance in the land that God gave Israel. They had no allotted portion. So if you didn't know this, God, when he entered his people into a promised land, he sectioned off different parts of it and gave them to each respective of the the 12 tribes. But the tribe of Levi did not have a section. They were kind of spread out. Uh, They were the priests uh, of the uh, the nation. And so uh, the tithe then was actually, it had more to do with food 
than it did money. It had more to do with the produce of the land than it did with uh, financial giving. With that said, though, uh, when you read the, the Old Testament, <clears throat> tithes and offerings kind of go together. So uh, sometimes the Old Testament lumps in offerings for the poor, uh, which were simple financial offerings that were given to the poor from any tribe, uh, not just Levi. So on its best days then, uh, the tithe was a law of provision for the poor and the homeless and the Levites. Uh, if you guys know the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, um, you might remember how Boaz asked his harvesters to leave some of the harvest behind so that the poor might come in and glean the scraps after the main harvesting kind of wave went through. He said, leave some behind so the poor can come in and so that they can have some, so they can, they can eat. Um, that's not the exact same thing, but you could say it's from the same family of laws in the Old Testament. Gleaning laws were some kind of the, from the same family of, of laws as tithings and, and offerings. All right, more to say, but that's kind of the gist of what tithing was in, in the Old Testament. Uh, but there was a dark underbelly to tithing as well. And that is, uh, it exposed Israel's hard-heartedness and greed all throughout the story. Uh, it was, if you've read the prophets before in the Old Testament, it was one of the things that actually led Israel into exile and judgment. It was their failure to keep this law perfectly, to hold back, to not have concern uh, for the poor among them and, and so forth. And so maybe a, a maxim, if there was one right here at this juncture, could be, uh, laws never work out well for people in the Bible. Uh, if, if that's a new thing to you, uh, write that down. Uh, or write it up here. Laws never work out well for people in the Bible, ever. Especially long term. Um, it, it, 9% you're damned. 11% you brag. And then you think you're too highly of yourself. And then you're damned. And even if you give 10%, you don't give it from a perfectly motivated heart with a concern for others. Um, often it flows from a place of self-promotion. Like many people today uh, would give, not just to give, but to be seen giving, uh, which is a, a big thing Israel was um, invested in, you could say, immorally uh, throughout uh, their sort of stint in the Old Testament. Uh, in other words, it was an impossible law to keep perfectly. The tithing laws were impossible laws to keep perfectly. Uh, one of the main mantras or threads of the Old Testament is to show us this and and how it actually leads people away from God. Tithing laws led people away from God, not closer, like all the laws did of, of, of the Old Testament. So when many Christians talk about tithing, they're not really talking about tithing, they're talking about giving. Uh, it's like when some Christians talk about being Sabbatarians or observing Sabbath, they're not really talking about Sabbath, literally, letter of the law, keeping Sabbath, literally, letter of the law, they're just resting and calling it Sabbath, but feeling more spiritual and maybe more obedient because they think they're keeping the Sabbath. But really, they just like weekends, like all of us uh, do. So um, it's kind of like that with tithing. So shifting gears a bit, when, when it comes to giving then, or, or to what I'll call New Testament, spirit-driven, gospel-embodying generosity, that's different. And this is something that we do uh, believe in and talk about as a community, especially with our members. And um, I just want to take a few minutes to kind of work through uh, what that is. Kind of a longer thing there. So what does New Testament, spirit-driven, gospel-embodying generosity mean? 
in the Bible? What does it look like maybe here at our church? Uh, I have kind of five quick things here. Uh, if you're a member, you've heard us talk about these things. If, if you're not, you've heard us sometimes preach about these things. We'll be looking uh, probably most extensively in, in, at 2 Corinthians 8-9 to because that's where the New Testament is most explicit. We actually read from it just a second ago. Um, you could call some of them even core values when it comes to how we talk about money here, which is not super often, especially from the pulpit. Uh, in fact, um, I think the last time I talked about this was 2008. So um, Caleb Zimmerman was like four years old at that, at that point. But um, <clears throat> it's been a while. But, the, so, but here's so five things the Bible talks about um, or that we talk about and want to emphasize value-wise when it comes to uh, New Testament, spirit-driven, gospel, and body and generosity. The first is uh, give freely, non-obligatorily. All right, 2 Corinthians 8, 8 says, Paul says to the church in Corinth, I say this not as a command, but to prove your love is genuine. Not as a command, but to prove that your love is genuine. So what I love about this is how not as a command and love go together. How not as a command and the presence of love are synchronous uh, here. Uh, saying that you have to do something takes the love out of it, like it would if I told my wife I bought her flowers because Spencer told me to. You know, it'd be like, oh, how romantic, you know? Uh, Being told you have to do something in love, it it just doesn't fit. That's what Paul is saying here. He's actually, in this context, he's raising money from richer Christians to give to the poorer church in Jerusalem. Uh, That's a big part of Paul's. It's not the only thing he's doing uh, of course, if you, uh, if you know a bit about this, like in the book of Acts, he's planting churches. That's kind of just in general primarily his, his thing. But he's also, as he's passing through, raising money from richer Christians to give to really po- the, the poorer church, uh, relatively speaking, uh, of Jewish Christians in, in Jerusalem. And so he's saying this in reference to that. It's not a command. There's no, notice there's no 10% here, no tithe mention. This is not a law. This is not an obligation. This is just a chance to express that You're loving other Christians as you've first been loved by God, to to live out of that. All right, so so we we do talk to our members here, especially about the importance of giving to the church, but similarly with this, not with any command or number attached to it, because we want people to freely give out of what's been given to them by God. Uh, Luther once said, A Christian has no need of any law in order to be saved, since through faith, We are free from every law. Thus, all the acts of a Christian are done spontaneously out of a sense of pure liberty. Uh, We we believe in this very strongly as a church. Uh, We believe that this is what Paul means in Romans 7 when he says we need to live out of the Spirit or by the Spirit of God, not by the written code, which is the law. Like, you can't just speak morality into existence. Uh, That did not work at all for Israel. It won't work for us either. Uh, we need a, a side door approach. We need to be saved from our inability uh, to keep the rules and to be in a relationship with God on the basis of his grace, not our obedience. All right? The second thing is uh, to give uh, to a local church and to other believers who have needs. Again, a biblical thing, but we'd say it's kind of a core value here too, maybe you could say on this topic. Um, but I'll say this too as kind of a subtitle here. Giving across the span of the New Testament is more local than global. So when you read the Bible in the New Testament, especially like giving is more of a kind of a local practice. 
than it is a global thing. It's looking around you to your spiritual family and asking, where can I help? Who has needs? Who's in a season of poverty? Like, relatively speaking. So um, it's, it's more defined, like, amongst the community, if that makes sense. Um, so think local church investment over global humanitarianism. But this latter thing is not bad, necessarily. It's just sec- much more secondary and not even talked about as much uh, as, in, in the Bible, as much as uh, local church investment. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but then look at this qualifier, especially to those who are in our church or of the household of faith. So Christians then, I mean, ideally, not that it's, you know, super important to always be, don't, don't obsess over this in terms of, like, exactly how well you're doing it. That's not the point. The, the, the point is just that we're not, we don't just scatter seed you know, like a farmer, like it's, there's a specificity to our giving, and we, we primarily invest in those that we know in, in our local church community. All right, third thing, uh, give in order to support pastors. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Uh, so this is referring to when Jesus himself um, taught that the ministry worker uh, should be worthy of his wages, or that, that is of fair pay. That's from Luke 10. So whether Jesus himself or Paul talk about this, you see this principle of um, pastors uh, who uh, in, in being given to by the local church financially. Um, four, given a way that frees up the gospel to run in our city against the gates of hell. Uh, this might be more that core value sort of uh, category, but I know I've shared this story with uh, many of you before, um, but one of the best talks on giving to the local church I've ever heard was at a conference. It was given by a pastor from South, South Africa. And uh, he said that when he talks to his church about giving, he often poses it in a question. He says, uh, what if we thought about our money as a means by which we can blow a hole the size of a house in the side of the gates of hell? And, right, and, and I, I, um, I remember hearing that for the first time, and apart from reaching for my credit card to give because I was so motivated, um, thinking, yeah, that's, that's actually it. You know, it, it's not, giving to a church is not about just keeping the heat on, though that's important uh, in Minnesota winters. It, it's, it's about advancing the gospel forward. Uh, you know, giving is an indirect way um, to literally do that, uh, it, to, to advance the gospel forward against the darkness, which happens best through a healthy local church. All right, then, uh, last, uh, give in a way that unclenches your fists from your works and your trust in wealth. Uh, And so uh, by this I mean um, generosity says, I'm trusting in something other than myself for salvation. Generosity in a figurative way says, I'm trusting something other than my work and what I've earned for salvation. Uh, so, uh, in other words, grace, in, in the Bible, grace is the opposite of works. So, al- although work and paychecks are gifts from God as well, um, the, the spiritual reality behind trusting too much in them is that we live counter to our beliefs in great, uh, our belief in God's grace. So, generos- the beautiful thing about generosity, then, is that it can be an action that tells the story of grace and kind of sets our hearts ablaze with joy in the process as we kind of unclench our fists from what we've done as though that matters ultimately to God um, and, and sort of saves us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 
<clears throat> helpfully, again, same kind of context as I was reading from before. It says, For I testify that uh, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And that last part's important because you see how we're way past a 10% rule at this point? We're way past rules altogether. We're talking about freedom and gospel-embodying generosity that's often beyond our ability, just like salvation is beyond our ability. Do you see the connection there? Your, your ability to save yourself, is, it's beyond your ability. And so giving beyond our ability tells a story. It puts on display, in, in a sense, a, a physical picture of that deeper spiritual reality. And so Paul is saying there's some Christians who are doing this, and it's, it's not like they're better because they were doing it. There's no such thing as a better Christian, because we're not saved by what we do. But he is still pointing, pointing a spotlight at them and saying, look at their pattern of giving. They gave in a way that reflected that we're saved by grace, not by works. And, and, and that's what generosity can, can image uh, and do. Uh, declenches us from ourselves and, and what we do and our works, and it opens our hands to a God who gives to us freely and graciously himself and saves us beyond, because it's beyond our ability. And that's really where all of this is headed uh, today. And um, th- again, this is a sermon, not a, you know, if, if you guys were asking me this, like, you know, after church, uh, we might, I, I might even almost stop there because it might be more of an informational answer or something, but this is a sermon. This is not, this is not, it's not even really answering a question, ultimately, uh, sermons um, must give way to the ultimate word, the better word. I just encourage you guys theologically in that. As you read your Bibles, as you, as you learn theology, as you talk with your friends and family about these things, um, who has the final word to your questions matters. Uh, because the Bible's laid out that way, right? The Bible is a story. It's got a, a beginning page and an ending page. It has a movement from Old to New Covenant and the Bible itself says that Jesus is the better word. There are lesser words and, and better words. And so um, kind of going off this fifth one then, but we'll even dial it up further. Um, where all of this is headed is the ultimate reality behind giving is Jesus Christ himself. The ultimate reality behind giving, financial or otherwise, is Jesus Christ himself. All right, uh, in what might serve as the pinnacle verse on this matter in all of the Bible, and we already read it this morning, which is actually cool because that wasn't planned, uh, that just happened, uh, but 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, in, again, in context with encouraging Christians to give to one another financially, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that amazing? Well, and what's interesting about this verse, one of the six million things, is that it isn't saying Jesus was a moral example to follow on a physical level. Instead, Paul is kind of like, you know, sidestepping briefly, and he's spiritualizing the principle of physical giving. Uh, he's saying uh, it, Jesus became poor on the cross for us. Though he was rich, he was the son of God. He descended, he condescended, he became homeless. Uh, he took on our sins on the cross. He became striped and he suffered on that tree for us. That's what it means here for Paul to say he became poor. He became poor and through that poverty, when he died for our sins, 
we became rich. We became wealthy. No matter how much money we have in life, physically, we are all equally wealthy in his grace. So he was the payment himself. Uh, his blood purchased people back from sin and death, as Revelation 5.9 says. Um, it's, it's so comprehensive here, not just with this verse, but everywhere in the Bible that you could say, Jesus is the reason and the image behind every act of generosity, no matter the size. Jesus is the image, he's the whisper behind it, he's the type or the picture, the foreshadowing, the arrow, the, the, the reference point behind every act of generosity, no matter the size. And, and this is why he's better than the tithe law. Because now there's no more measurements. There's no more do this perfectly or be damned. There's no more 10%. There's just 100% of his bloody body on a cross as the ultimate giver and the ultimate gift to sinners. That's what we're left with. That's the final word. And then and only then, a call to put his generosity on display through our own acts of generosity toward the church. But again, uh, the, the order of operations here is really important. Uh, his greater act breeds our lesser act in that order. His greater act of generosity breeds our lesser acts of generosity. It must be in that order, or, or we, 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 we cease to live in a distinctly Christian manner in that moment. We, you know, at best become good people, but Christians aren't concerned primarily about being good people. We're, we're concerned about being alive in him. That's different. Um, and so I'll, maybe I'll say it this way too. It, it's, it's only when the gospel surprises us, uh, it's only when we bask in the sunlight of the generous work of someone else's hands that we find, looking back, that maybe we're a little more generous than we used to be. But it will not come from being told to be more generous. It just won't. It won't work. Uh, what will work is Christ. What will work is his grace. What will work is being wrecked and moved by love and by being given to undeservedly, even by our loving and grace-filled creator. So Jesus is greater than the tithe because he's greater than the law, but, and this is where the rabbit hole goes even deeper, uh, another way to look at it would be to say Jesus is the tithe. Uh, the, the Old Testament tithe law existed for the sake of Christ, to point to him and give way to him. So by, by this I mean, like the tithe law took care of the physically poor, so does Jesus' body and blood care for the spiritually poor. This is what Paul was just saying in 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, but also it, it goes even uh, uh, higher here. Like the tithe became the inheritance for the one tribe of priests, so is Jesus himself called our inheritance in the New Testament, an inheritance for the kingdom of priests that constitutes his church. Because if you're a believer, uh, we are called the priesthood now of believers. We are, we are like a, a, a priestly citizenship. We, we are his people. Uh, we have access to him now through Christ alone uh, and, and no one or no thing else. And so that means that Jesus is our land. It means Jesus is our portion. He is our produce. He is our food. He is our sustenance, and again, he is our tithe 
but not paid by us, paid by God himself for us. God's the payer. He is the tithe, and God the Father in heaven is the one who willingly, lovingly pays that uh, for us so that we benefit. Does that make sense? You see how this is for him? Like all the laws of Scripture, every uh, dot and tittle, every corner, every story, every law, every instance of anything, uh, somehow tells the story of Christ. Uh, The tithe was for him. Jesus is your tithe. So it's more about him than it is you and me. And the way that this all occurs is maybe most important to see. Uh, It it helps to kind of call back to the book of Ruth. I know we didn't look at this extensively today if you don't know the story, but um, if you do know, to to call back in your mind the book of Ruth again and ask, uh, if you don't know the book of Ruth, you, you can ask this question. What happens to wheat when it's harvested and left on the ground for others to glean or simply given to others to eat? Like, what happens? What happens to wheat when it's harvested and left on the ground? Uh, it, it suffers, right? It's beaten, the book of Ruth says. It's left for dead. But it's in the death that it becomes life for the poor. Don't miss this. This is a crucial theology to get. Tithing and gleaning laws of the Old Testament were laws of suffering, They are not exempt from suffering. They are not apart from the principle and the act and reality of suffering. Something had to suffer in order for these laws to be kept and enacted and for people to be blessed. Something had to suffer in order for it to go into effect and to be a blessing to the recipients. And we see this every day, right? Whether you, um, uh, my daughter just uh, baked bread, she uh, in her math class, she had to bake bread. Go figure. Yeah, I won't, I won't go back into that. But she's done with math, and so they said, do something you're, you're passionate about. So she made bread, and, it's, and when you make bread, you have to slice it, right? So anytime you slice or bake bread, you're harming the bread. That This is why broken bread images Jesus more than unbroken. He is the bread of life, but he's the broken bread of life. Every, every time you pick a fruit off a tree and cut it open or sink your teeth into it, uh, the tree or the fruit or whatever, something is suffering, something's dying that we might be, be uh, blessed and, and seen. This is crucial to see. Please don't miss this. Tithing laws and gleaning laws were laws of suffering. And in that way, they pointed to the ultimate sufferer, the one who fulfilled all suffering in the Bible in all of history. In John 12, uh, 23 to 24, actually, Jesus likens himself in an agrarian manner Uh, to this whole idea. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man, speaking of himself, to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So again, something we see in the the annual cycle of growth and harvest and, and death cycles every year in our lives, right? Jesus is saying, I'm the reason that exists. I'm the reason for harvest. I'm the reason for wheat. I'm the reason for seeds. I'm the reason for seeds growing into new plants and producing more seeds. I'm the reason all of that exists. It's not just random. I created it for me to point to the spiritual reality that is me and the physical. 
that I would one day come to die on a cross for the sins of the world. That the seed that is me would die and so that you could glean. This is, this is what God is like to us. This is what he's like to you. He's a sufferer. He incurs the suffering so that we can benefit and we can have an inheritance and an allotment and we can be fed and nourished. But it's by the works of someone else's hands. Uh, don't miss it. It's by the works of someone else's hands that we glean, not the works of, of our own. So, <clears throat> coming full circle then uh, to this question of uh, do you believe in tithing at Hiawatha? I, I would say um, it's a layered answer, uh, which is why we kind of took the scenic route here. Um, but if we were to just give like a succinct response to this, I would say our ultimate answer is no. We believe in Jesus of whom tithing was just a shadow, in whom we have the greatest gift God ever gave to the human race, the gift of salvation, and for whose fame we give to our church and to each other and to the needy in our midst. And as uh, Paul appropriately um, ends his discourse on giving in the book of 2 Corinthians with a doxology, uh, which is a, a word of praise and glorifying uh, glorification of Jesus. I'll just end the same way by saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You see how it moves? It moves from theory to gospel and how it's not just concept and how the final word is about God's gift, not your gift to other people. The final word of your Christian life is not, what are you doing, but what has he done? That has to be the final word. Or we'll miss the gospel, we'll be stifled in our generosity, we'll be doing it for the wrong reasons. Uh, All kinds of terrible things will come if the final word is you and what you must do, uh, or, or me or what I must do. The final word is, thanks be to God for his gift, which is the gift of his son, period. That has to be it. God has incurred the suffering. And this is where it gets personal, too, is to say, um, I know I said this before, I'll just, I want to make sure this is clear, then I'll say it again. God has tithed for you. That's what the Bible's saying. God has tithed for you. He has not just given 10%, he's given 100% of everything. So you are freed from needing to be the perfect giver. Because he is. Though the law exposed how you could never give perfectly, and we still can't, uh, it gave way to the one who could. For his fame and our happiness and peace in knowing that there actually is a God who exists who is like that. Isn't that a relief? There's a God who exists who wants to give to you more than you will ever know and ever dream, who loves you more than you'll ever know or ever dream. So you are freed from needing to match his generosity. Um, God has incurred the suffering for us poor sinners who owe lifetimes of debt we can never repay. He has died that we might live. He has given of himself to us. And so the Bible yet again beckons us to belief. It says, believe in him, receive from him, and you will live. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, uh, God, for this uh, question we got, this, uh, um, this topic, this uh, word you have for us uh, in, in, your, uh, in your greater uh, scripture about 
generosity, about tithing, about giving, about gleaning, about produce, about priestly tribes. Uh, as your word says in Colossians 1, all things were made for Jesus. That includes all of those things I just said. Um, all those things were made for him for the sake of telling us the story about him. And so I pray, one, that you'd let us rest, help us to rest in that, knowing that this whole thing is more about you giving to us uh, than it is about us doing anything. Um, and yet, help us to live freely out of that, uh, to, to gladly give out of what we've been given, um, to, to put on display and put on center stage a physical drama of a God who condescended and became bloody for us, um, and one who didn't say, I want you to bleed for me, but one who said, I want to bleed for you because I love you so much, and this is how much. And so you stretched your arms out wide. Um, God, I pray you'd help us to believe in, the, in, in you today through this facet and this uh, angle uh, of your word and to sing with uh, thankfulness and relief before we leave. Uh, in Christ we pray. Amen.